3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Welcome to the show. It's the 5th of January 2022. My name's Alice and I'll be guiding you through this Wednesday breakfast show on 3CR. So thank you for joining me. Now, today we've got a show packed to the brim of interviews that we think will get your brain juices flowing and set you up raring to go for the new year. So first up on the show, we're going to hear Fat Bodies, Healthy Lives, the special feature about healthy living in every body and every size. West Australian community broadcaster Rebecca Bowman pushes back on the singular, outdated and flat out bogus notion that slim equals healthy. And after that, we're going to take a dive into an area that's bound to stimulate some deep thinking. Beth Matthews from 3CR's Radical Philosophy Program speaks to Associate Professor Elizabeth Feneron Burns about the possibilities for and ethics of human extinction. After that, we'll be hearing a full-length interview with Dana Sussman, Deputy Executive Director of the National Advocates for Pregnant Women in the United States. Dana served for six years as Deputy Commissioner of Policy and Intergovernmental Affairs at the New York City Commission on Human Rights, the agency charged with enforcing one of the most comprehensive anti-discrimination laws in the country. I spoke to Dana about one case in particular, and that's the case of Brittany Pular, an Indigenous woman from the US who in November was convicted of manslaughter after experiencing a miscarriage. Dana is working to support Brittany, as is the whole team at the NAPW. Um, Before listening to this interview, please note that it does touch on pregnancy loss. So that's coming up at about quarter to eight on the show, between quarter to eight and eight o'clock. So yeah, please do bear that in mind. So as you can tell for the lineup today, it's pretty jam-packed. It's really crucial conversations that we're having and we're going to get straight into it. Before we do, here is Lady Serpentine with Soul Song. Feeling so strong, singing my 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 soul song.
And that was Lady Serpentine with Soul Song. You're listening to 3CR. My name's Alice and this is Wednesday Breakfast. Next up, we're going to hear a special radio feature presented by Rebecca Bowman from RTR FM radio station in Western Australia. Beck was one of the 10 community radio broadcasters around Australia selected to participate in the 2021 Community Broadcaster Association of Australia's National Features and Documentary Series. Her audio feature is called Fat Bodies, Healthy Lives, and it explores the framework for healthy living, no matter what your body and size. So let's get straight into that. Take it away, Rebecca Bowman. Australia, we are in an obesity crisis. Fat people are destroying our economies and our Instagram feeds. Whoa, 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 whoa. Are you sure this is the story you want to tell about people living in fat bodies that were all unhealthy and miserable? What story? I'm helping fat people get thin with this new reality TV show I'm making. Well, I'm just saying, most people on that weight loss show gain back the weight they lost within, like, 18 months. Yeah, but that was just a show. But in real life, if you eat less and move more, you're going to lose more weight. Really, people just aren't trying hard enough. Nice try, but it's not just reality TV. Most people who intentionally lose weight will gain that weight back within five years. At least they'll take pressure off their hearts while they are skinny. Yeah, wrong again. Weight cycling, when your weight goes down and up and down, causes increased stress on the heart, and that can lead to worse cardiovascular outcomes in the long term. So what, fat people should just give up? Well, we should all give up dieting, but no, this is not about giving up. In fact, maybe I should be doing the talking here. My name is Beck Bowman, and today I'm going to show you that being fat does not mean being unhealthy. I travelled to Fremantle, Western Australia's portside home of musicians and hippies, to talk to Claire Gasper. She's a dietitian with legit qualifications. She's got a Bachelor in Nutrition and a Postgrad in Dietetics from Curtin University. I offered to pick her up a coffee on my way. Can I get a latte with one sugar, please? Wait, are dietitians even allowed to have sugar? I have certainly never quit sugar, and it always surprises people. Claire describes herself as a non-diet dietitian. What non-diet dietitians really specialise in is looking at how someone eats, why they eat, what their history with food has been like, and the intersection of um, the, the weight stigma that perhaps they've experienced growing up or they continue to experience as an adult, um, the intersection with that and their, their current food choices. So there's, it's understanding the context of someone's eating rather than just trying to change what they're um, eating. So she helps people figure out why they eat so then they can eat healthy. Well, she helps people reconnect to their innate hunger. So they eat less? No. You are still hung up on this idea that people who are fat just sit around eating all the time and it's just not true. In fact, the biggest predictor of future weight gain is the restriction of food intake, a.k.a. 
dieting. Non-diet dietitians are weight neutral. So all of the work that we do is about improving someone's relationship with food and, and their body um, and optimizing nutrition rather than being focused on um, getting people within a certain BMI range. Claire finds that the less people are trying to restrict their food intake, the better choices they make for their health overall. So it means we're not compromising someone's long-term physical and mental health just for the sake of achieving a weight loss goal. A pretty standard thing that I do is I go through and I use an assessment tool called the Intuitive Eating Scale. Um, Claire is talking here about using an intuitive eating scale with a client. It's a bit technical, so here's the basic version. Intuitive eating is a framework developed in 1995 by Evelyn Triboli and Elise Resch that gets you to listen to your internal cues for hunger and fullness rather than relying on some diet to tell you when and what to eat. Intuitive eating rejects the idea of good or bad foods and encourages gentle nutrition. Because it's been around for 25 years now, there's a lot of research that shows the positive benefits of intuitive eating, including decreased cholesterol, lower stress levels, increased energy and increased um, self-esteem. The, the results that they got from that were they were thinking about food a lot less. They weren't obsessing about that. It wasn't consuming their life. They were a lot more accepting of, of their body and appreciative of what their body could do. Um, and they were actually making more nutritious food choices. But they were doing it because it helps their body to feel good rather than doing it because they felt like they should mm. or doing it because it was part of a, a diet or a healthy eating program that they were following. It's not just reality TV that make fat people out to be society's biggest losers. The media does it all the time and often under the guise of concern for our health, which is why I had to ask Claire, is it possible to be both fat and healthy? Oh, 100%. Sorry, I scoffed at that because <laughs> that's, for me that's, that's just something that I take for granted that you know that is a fact for me yeah. um, and and it's a it's something that is well well supported by by the evidence um i'll have people present to me who are in a large body or who identify as fat people um and they are being physically active they're you know they have very low alcohol intake they don't smoke cigarettes they enjoy a wide range of nutritious foods um and their, their blood work supports that you know their blood sugars in a low level blood pressure is great cholesterol's fine um but if you were to go off the the current kind of narrative you might think oh okay that person must be unhealthy or um, we need to kind of jump in and intervene to help this person lose weight okay then so what is health anyway so now you're asking the right questions to be healthy we need to think of the behaviors that we engage in in a day-to-day -day basis rather than just how we look simone burzen is a physiotherapist with black swan health Black Swan is a not-for-profit primary healthcare organisation based in Perth. She has been doing a lot of research into the biopsychosocial model of health. A, a biopsycho what? 
a biopsychosocial model of health recognises that health is not just eating less and moving more, but it encompasses all the social, cultural, environmental and psychological ways our health is impacted. Because it's not only what goes on in the tissues, what goes in our minds, our thoughts and our beliefs again, coupled with that, the social context of our lives. Are we socially engaged? Are we isolated? Are we at work? Are we able to work? What are those implications on absolutely everything? You know, there's a whole lot of things. And I think we, we need to be able to sort of peel back those onion layers, layer by layer, in order to see the big picture. And that's what this paradigm shift from this medical model, which is a find it, fix it, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to this kind of holistic mind-body triad of health approach. And I really realise that social ties are as important for our health as exercise and diet and good sleep and less stress. And the role of our social lives that play in our healthiness can never be underestimated. And so people feeling isolated due to feeling judged and marginalised equate health to isolation. Mm. And that in itself is a big problem. When we're isolated and alone, we feel less happy. And when we feel less happy, I think we feel less healthy. I'm Beck Bowman, and this feature on Health at Every Size is part of the National Features Documentary Series 2021. And this is really where your fat people should lose weight argument starts to fall down. Because by going on all the time about fat people needing to lose weight, I'm actually sending the message that fat people cannot be healthy. Exactly. And both Claire and Simone agree that making people feel shame about their bodies has a negative impact. Overweight people, they face perceived social disapproval. They often tell me that they feel unvalidated, they're perceived as being lazy or weak-willed, and this can in itself cause feelings of worthlessness. On on, On the converse side of it, pain and depression and anxiety which go together can also cause people to eat less and rapidly lose weight and be unhealthy as well and also pose serious health risks. So there's two ends of the scale that we're not even really looking at. Interestingly enough, we we understand, again, from, from the evidence, that about a quarter of people who fit into the healthy weight BMI category are metabolically unhealthy. So you can think of that, I guess, as a kind of a ticking time bomb. I know that's quite alarmist language, but um, that just because they seem to be healthy based on their weight, they may miss the extra tests or the monitoring or things to actually work out whether they are at risk of certain health conditions or currently already living with a condition. So weight stigma harms everyone. It harms people in fat bodies, it harms people in thin bodies. But focusing on weight, either over or underweight, has really big unintended kind of consequences. We know that in terms of long-term health outcomes, health behaviours have far more of an impact than someone's weight. And you absolutely cannot judge a person's healthiness just by looking at them. So we aren't dieting. We're eating and moving. With intention? Yeah. Being healthy is about living your best life. It's not about being constantly worried about the size of your body. It's about being intentional about your own physical, mental and social well-being in the body you have right now, whatever that happens to look like. 
if we're able to do the things we want to do, if we're able to engage in the valued activities we want to engage, if we're surrounded by things and people we love or animals or whatever it is that give meaning to our lives, isn't that healthy? Thanks, Beck. You've given me a lot to chew over. Pun intended. <laughs> no worries. Let's get some movement into our day. You want to take this dog for a walk and grab a coffee? Maybe you could help me come up with a new reality TV show while we walk. Something like maybe The Bachelor but with dogs? <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> are, you a good dog? are you a good dog? Oh, yes, you are. You want to go for a walk? You want to go for a walk? Let's go for it. I'm Beck Bowman and this has been a friendly reminder that health looks different on everybody and diet culture sucks for all bodies. This has been produced as part of the National Features and Documentary Series for the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. That was Beck Bowman with Fat Bodies Healthy Lives. Produced at the studios of RTRFM 92.1 on Wajak Noongar Country, with supervising production from Ian Hill and training from the Community Media Training Organisation. It was part of the 2021 National Features and Documentary Series. There are another nine stories to hear, so if you'd like to hear more, visit nfds.org.au. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. What a fantastic exploration of the relationship between body size and health. So important to normalise the reality that all bodies can be healthy, no matter what the size, no matter what you look like, no matter what shape we all come in. And so, yeah, love that. Thank you, Rebecca. Now here's Fancy Normal with Laser Beam.
And that was Fancy Normal with Laser Beam. Now we're going to jump into some radical philosophy with a fascinating conversation about human extinction. Elizabeth Fenneron Burns is Associate Professor of Political Theory at the Western University in Canada and an affiliate of the Institute of Future Studies in Stockholm. She spoke with Beth Matthews, host of 3CR's Radical Philosophy show, a few weeks back about methods of population control and whether human extinction is morally wrong. Content warning for listeners. This segment contains references to the voluntary and involuntary taking of human life and mentions suicide. If this might be triggering for you, you might wish to tune out for the next 20 minutes or so. If you do need to seek help or if you're feeling at risk, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or call 000 in an emergency. Now, here's Beth Matthews from 3CR Radical Philosophy talking with Elizabeth Ferneron Burns. Beth has just asked Elizabeth to share a little of her background before asking the big question, how does someone become interested in human extinction? I'm interested in all sorts of philosophical issues that arise um, with respect to future generations. Um, And for our purposes today, whether it would be wrong for there to be no future generations so, i.e., for human extinction to happen. What was it that inspired you to study human extinction? Um, so, when I was writing my DPhil, my, my PhD on intergenerational ethics uh, at Oxford, I noticed that a lot of the time philosophers feel that if a theory allows human extinction, then this disqualifies it from being an acceptable theory of intergenerational justice. So if it if it says, uh, you know, human extinction is permissible, then people say, well, this this ethical theory must be wrong. Um, so what prompted me to think about it was I wanted to make sure that the theory I was developing didn't permit human extinction for that same reason. But as I was working on it and talking about it with my supervisor, I came to the surprising view that actually I don't think human extinction is necessarily wrong in itself. Um, And even more surprisingly, I noticed that there really wasn't a lot of work on the ethics of human extinction at the time. And even now there isn't, there still isn't very much, despite the fact that so many people or philosophers in particular felt that it was important enough that allowing it would disqualify theories of justice or ethical theories. And At Oxford and Cambridge, there's uh, the Future of Humanity Institute and the Center for the Study of Existential Risk. But even there, most of the work being done is on how to avoid human extinction. And they just assume that it's wrong. But I wondered at the time, and I still do wonder, why should we assume that it's wrong? And I don't don't think that we should. Yeah, that's a a really good point. I mean, you're right. I suppose most people really don't even think about it because they just think well everybody every human would agree that um that it is wrong so yeah no that's really interesting that's definitely my experience teaching on the topic um with undergraduates or even graduate students um even when confronted with some of the arguments or questioning well hang on why is that wrong why is that wrong so on and so forth they still just fall back to this really strong intuition. And I don't blame them because I had it and I still it's still lingering in there a little bit that, oh, well, it just it would just be bad. <laughs> it would be 
really bad if humans never existed anymore. What are some of the methods of population control? So um, we need to remember that control doesn't necessarily mean limit, right? So you can control something by either increasing it or decreasing it. And lots of countries actually have policies that encourage population growth. So things like child benefits or tax breaks for parents, free childcare, that's something that um, the Canadian government has been promising to bring in for years and it already exists in lots of Scandinavian countries. Um, free fertility treatments, either for um, gay and lesbian couples or um, couples who just can't have children for other reasons. And these may all encourage people to have either children they wouldn't have had or just more children than they would have had without these sort of policies or supports. But I think what your question is probably getting at and what most people worry about are methods with the opposite effect that are trying to reduce population growth. Um, and there are more or less coercive methods that, um, that we can use. Some innocuous methods could be governments just disincentivizing having more children than they want you to. So for example, in the UK, the government limited the number of children that you can claim child benefit for to two. Um, <clears throat> or we might provide birth control free of charge, education campaigns or ads encouraging people to use it, ensuring that abortion is legal and freely available and that sort of thing. But that policy won't necessarily reduce people's desire to have children, but it would likely reduce the number of unplanned births that result from accidental pregnancies. But again, more coercive methods exist, and these are the ones that most people um, are anxious about or worry about, like China's former one-child policy, Couples are only permitted to have one child in an attempt to slow population growth, but that seriously limits people's reproductive freedom, and lots of people think that, that that would be wrong. And then on the far end of the spectrum would be things like forced sterilizations, forced abortions, or even murder, if you really wanted to go extreme, because of course you can reduce population at either end by either preventing more people from being born or killing those people who are already alive. Can these methods be empirically or morally justified? Um, I can't really answer about the empirical question. That's one for the social scientists or demographers to say whether these, I mean, obviously killing people would reduce population and things, but in terms of the nudging um, methods that I mentioned earlier, um, I don't know whether they're effective or not. They probably are to a certain extent, but in terms of the ethics of it, um, I think there's lots of reasons why the last set of methods, the really coercive ones, aren't justified. Um, even if we believed very strongly that the world is overpopulated, most theories would likely support the idea of bodily autonomy, that people shouldn't be forced to undergo medical procedures like sterilizations or abortions. Um, even those who think all procreation is wrong, like David Benatar, for example, would argue, I assume, in favor of disincentivizing it rather than forcing it. But there's lots less agreement about nudging policies. So governments try to nudge us to do the right things for the collective all the time, like eating well, exercising, quitting smoking, drinking less. Um, and they do that through taxation and other kind of non-coercive means. 
But one problem with policies like cutting off child benefits after a certain number of children or other policies that disincentivize having children is that they harm the children who are born anyway. And those children are blameless because their parents have fewer to, fewer resources to devote to them. So they end up suffering due to something completely outside of their control, which is their parents having children despite the disincentives and the government's choice to impose those disincentives. So um, I don't have an answer whether they're justified or not, but these are just some considerations to, uh, to think about. Um, I think I would probably lean towards um, them being permitted, but with lots of exceptions um, to make sure that the children themselves aren't the ones who are suffering. Could you explain about the four reasons why we might consider human extinction to be wrong? Yes, sure. Um, so the first reason that we think it might be wrong is sort of what I alluded to before when I was talking about the undergraduates and their intuitions. And that's a lot of people just think it would be a shame if future people don't get a chance to exist. So we, we often think, well, I'm glad I exist. So wouldn't I be sad if I never got to exist? Um, and so by extension, it would be bad for future people if they never get that opportunity. Um, and Peter Singer put it um, once, and I'm paraphrasing, that the worst part about human extinction is that there would be no future people to get to enjoy life. And I think this is a very powerful intuition that most people probably share. Not everybody, but probably most people. Um, the second reason that people often think extinction could be bad is because of all of humanity's accomplishments. And they think that, you know, we've, we've civilized the world, we've um, built amazing buildings, um, painted wonderful paintings, and all of these accomplishments would have been totally pointless if human extinction happens. So what good is the Sphinx if no one's around to admire it, for example? Uh, the value of all the great literature and thinkers, which is vanish. So the thought goes, if no one's around to value it. Um, they also think that um, there would be no intelligent life. And many people think that the lack of intelligent beings would be a huge loss uh, to the world. I mean, we don't know about the existence of aliens on other countries, but as far as we are aware, humans are the only intelligent species. And so losing it would be, would be a loss for that reason. But the third reason <clears throat> is that if we knew human extinction was coming, we'd likely feel a lot of pain, like psychological pain and sadness. So our lives would lose meaning. Why would we bother to try to cure cancer if we know humanity is ending in 20 years? What would be the point in writing a book that nobody will be around to read? And so on and so forth. So Samuel Scheffler thinks that the knowledge that human extinction is coming would be absolutely devastating to our personal projects and goals and basically render everything that we do meaningless. And it would just be this sort of existential dread and just um, feeling of hopelessness that everybody would share and that that would be really bad for us. And the last reason I think human extinction could be wrong or bad is that it's pretty obvious that it would cause a lot of people a lot of physical pain. So if you think about the ways that it could happen, you know, an asteroid could hit the earth. Lots of people would be hit by it and suffer the pain of being hit by an asteroid. 
And everyone else would probably die slowly due to the environmental aspect. Or if humans suddenly became infertile, just out of nowhere, and extinction happened slowly because um, people started aging, but there were no new people. Um, think about what it would be like to be that last group of people. So there would be no farmers or there'd be very few people around to grow food, to be doctors, nurses, to care for the people in their last days and so on. So I think the last generation of people would clearly suffer massively physical pain um, in addition to the psychological pain that Scheffler was talking about. Um, and, but in my view, only those last two reasons are important reasons to try to avoid human extinction. So um, my personal view is something called person affecting morality, which means that I think something can only be wrong if it negatively affects somebody. So to me, the fact that human extinction will mean that some future people don't exist isn't necessarily a problem because they aren't people yet. So I don't think that it can be wrong to prevent people from existing. Um, there's nobody harmed by not being brought into existence because they don't exist. So they, there's nobody there to harm them. Is I think if it is wrong to fail to bring people into existence, then most of us are doing wrong all of the time. I certainly am right now by sitting here talking to you instead of trying to create as many future people as I can. Um, I'm not going to get into <laughs> how that happened, but you know, we're none of us have as many children as we possibly could, which means we would all be acting wrongly. And that's possible that we are acting wrongly. I just don't think that it's right. I also don't think that the loss of intelligent life and civilization is a problem per se. Um, if there's no humans around, then it's true that there's no one to appreciate the intelligence or civilization that we developed, but there's also no one to be harmed by their absence. So, I mean, if, if there's no intelligent life, there's no intel and only intelligent life can appreciate intelligent life, then nobody is harmed by the lack of intelligent life. But I do think that the last two reasons matter. So the psychological pain and the physical pain. So if a government involuntarily sterilized everybody, for example, which caused humans to gradually go extinct, and that would hurt us psychologically, and physically, then I think that would be wrong um, because it caused us that psychological and physical pain without our consent. Um, and the same would be true if somebody decided to just poison the entire species and we all died suddenly. But I do think that if all humans unanimously decided, you know, miraculously, that you know what, humans are kind of a blight on the world, we just don't want to do this anymore and we decided to all take a pill, a painless pill, and just all die voluntarily. Um, and I don't think that there would be anything wrong with that. Um, you know, it would be voluntary. It would be painless. Even if it weren't painless, if it's voluntary, I think that's still fine. Um, so I think that it means that human extinction is wrong when it causes involuntary pain or suffering, physical or otherwise. But I don't think extinction itself is wrong. Just what matters is the way that it could and would likely come about. So just to clarify, because some people have read my paper and misinterpreted my conclusion, I'm not saying that extinction is a good thing or would be a good thing. I'm not saying we should all go and take that 
painless suicide pill. I'm just saying that if we wanted to, that there wouldn't be anything necessarily wrong with that. Um, and that it shouldn't be, ideally, it shouldn't be imposed on us involuntarily. Obviously, there's some things we can't control, like asteroids hitting the Earth. Um, but what matters is how extinction would come about. And because in all likelihood, extinction could only come about through these painless, or the, through these painful or involuntary methods, in general, human extinction would be wrong, but it need not be because there are other ways that it could happen. So it's not wrong in itself. Mm, yeah, that, that's a really good point. The world population this year is 7.9 billion. Is there any chance that humans could be extinct? Um, so I'm not a scientist, obviously, um, but most scientists seem to agree that every species will eventually go extinct, including our own. Um, whether it happens sooner or later and the ways that it happens are possibly under control, um, under our control, sorry, um, not necessarily, but it could be. So as far as I know, most of the scientific efforts aren't actually focused on trying to avoid human extinction um, because most people think that it's inevitable eventually, um, but they are putting a lot of work and energy into preventing it happening for as long as possible. So again, those, um, those centers that I discussed at Oxford and Cambridge, um, you know, the study, Center for the Study of Existential Risk, they're trying to uh, find ways of preventing the risk of human extinction rather than um, sort of extinguishing it. Um, sorry for using the word extinguish again. Um, so yeah, they want to prolong it. They wanna prolong human history rather than trying to prevent it from going extinct. But I think some other interesting things that they're doing, not just at those centers, but um, in the field of existential risk is um, they're working on whether it would count as human extinction if we were replaced by artificial intelligence, for example. So imagine that we could download our minds, human minds into robots, let's say, um, whether, whether humans would really be considered to be extinct in that case. Because if what's important about humanity is our intelligence and our experiences and our cultures and so on, we could still potentially continue all of those things, just not in the body of a homo sapien. It would be in a robot, for example. So in those cases, we as humans, our minds are the same, but they're just in different sort of receptacles, let's say. But then again, the other alternative is we're not downloading our minds, for example, we're just creating intelligent robots who can do all the same things as humans, have the same experiences, um, are intelligent, you know, can think and feel and all of that, um, but they wouldn't be humans in any way. But if you're somebody who's convinced by the argument that what matters about human extinction is the loss of intelligent life, then replacing us by artificial intelligence would not be to lose intelligent life. Um, Similarly, if we did find another, say, species of aliens who are intelligent somewhere out there in the galaxy, uh, 
then maybe we wouldn't have any reason to worry about humans going extinct per se, because we know that there is human, sorry, we know that there is intelligent life out there somewhere and they could continue our projects, appreciate our culture um, and so on and so forth. Um, and then there's all these people who are interested in cryogenically preserving humanity in the, uh, in the event that some disaster did happen, then we, we would have at least a few lucky souls who were, who could be unfrozen. I'm not sure how the, how the actual science works, but I know that some people are doing this. And uh, one of the reasons that some people do it, not necessarily just for themselves, but for humanity in general, is that if there were a disaster and the you know, cryogenically um, preserved bodies could be defrosted, um, then that would continue humanity. So um, potentially humans would go extinct, but then they would come back. So it'd be possible to uh, bring human humanity back again. So it, you know, it's a hard question. Is there any chance humans could go extinct? It, a, lot of, a lot of that depends on what you think humanity is what you think it means to go extinct. Um, but it is likely that the species Homo sapien will go extinct at some point. Um, but whether that counts as human extinction, whether that's enough to say humanity has gone extinct is a whole different philosophical question. And that was Beth Matthews speaking with Associate Professor Elizabeth Fenneron Burns from the Western University in Canada about the moral questions around human extinction. If anything in this segment has been triggering for you or you feel at risk, please reach out and contact Lifeline at 13 11 14 or call triple zero in an emergency. If you'd like to hear the full interview, please head to the 3CR website and go to the Radical Philosophy program page. You'll find the episode right there. Radical Philosophy airs every Saturday afternoon from 1.30 to 2pm on 3CR. Thank you to Beth for sharing this audio with us. And now we're going to take a listen to Mizuki with How Far We've Come.
Yeah, I spent three and a half years living on the street and I know what it's like to have no hope and not to feel part of the society and I think that's where a lot of these people are. But I think we need to help people who are traumatised and help people get back on their feet and give them hope and help them um, feel like they're a part of the society again instead of just moving them on like they're an inconvenience. If it were not for ruminations, how would the views of those of us who have been homeless or are homeless, how would these views ever be aired? How would they ever be expressed? Subscribe to the station that gives airtime to people with a lived experience of homelessness. Support 3CR. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast. You're here with me, Alice, on this Wednesday morning, and that was Mizuki with How Far We've Come. Now we're going to head to an interview with Dana Sussman, Deputy Executive Director of the National Advocates for Pregnant Women in the United States. Dana served for six years as Deputy Commissioner of Policy and Intergovernmental Affairs at the New York City Commission on Human Rights the agency charged with enforcing one of the most comprehensive anti-discrimination laws in the country. I spoke to Dana about one case in particular, and that's the case of Brittany Pular, an Indigenous woman from the US who in November was convicted of manslaughter after experiencing a miscarriage. Dana is working to support Brittany, as is the whole team at the NAPW. Please note that this interview touches on pregnancy loss. If anything in this segment has been triggering for you or you feel at risk, please again reach out and contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or call 000 in an emergency. I started by asking Dana to tell us a little bit more about Brittany Pula and her case. Brittany is a 21-year-old young woman um, in Oklahoma. Um, she is a member of the Wichita tribe in Oklahoma. She is a Native American woman. Um, and at 19 years old, she experienced a miscarriage at approximately 15 to 17 weeks of pregnancy. Like you would do in a medical emergency, she called um, for an ambulance that took her to the hospital where she shared with medical personnel um, at the hospital that she had used methamphetamine and marijuana during her pregnancy. She was treated for the miscarriage at the hospital and stayed there for a couple of days or at least overnight and was discharged. And then several weeks later, she was arrested and charged with manslaughter. That actually happened in March of 2020. So right as COVID hit the U.S. and she ended up in jail for the entire pretrial period. So everything was delayed because of COVID. Her bond was, 20, was set at $20,000 and she could not afford to pay that. So she sat in jail until October of this year. So a year and a half waiting for trial. Her court-appointed attorney waived basically every right that she had to a preliminary hearing and went to trial. Um, it was a one-day trial in October of this year. Her court-appointed attorney put up no witnesses on her behalf. And essentially, the entire case rested on the medical examiner's report. Um, and the medical examiner's report itself did not ascribe her drug use to the miscarriage or anything else she did or didn't do during pregnancy. It mentioned a whole host of contributing factors uh, that potentially contributed to the miscarriage. And the medical examiner and another uh, witness 
also did not say on the record that her anything she did or didn't do during pregnancy caused the miscarriage. Despite that, she was convicted um, of manslaughter, and the following day she was sentenced to four years in prison. That is the minimum sentence for manslaughter in the state of Oklahoma. So she did receive the minimum, um, and she is currently serving her prison term right now in Oklahoma. Wow. And how is Brittany? How how is she holding up? Yeah, you know, she's a young woman who should really just be starting out on her finding what out what she wants to do with her life, exploring her interests. Um, and it it's really hard to say that she's doing well because she's in prison after having experienced all of this trauma and co- compounding trauma. I will say though that she is overwhelmed with gratitude for the support that she's received from around the world. When the story broke, there was sort of an an outcry in the U.S., nationally, internationally over her case. And um, I think she felt far less alone and far less, um, you know, to blame. Like she, I think she was feeling less sort of personal blame around what had happened. We had set up a Google form on our website where you could just send her a note of support. And we've received almost 800 of those um, really within a few days of us putting that up. And we've been printing them out and mailing them to her in regular intervals. So she's getting them in small batches. And that has really been um, a a light for her. Um, And just knowing that people are really pulling for her and that people have reached out who have experienced pregnancy loss, people who've experienced criminalization related to pregnancy loss. So she shows she feels far less alone. And I think already for so many people that experience pregnancy loss, there's already shame. And that's just, it's such an emotional experience. There's shame involved as well. But then to also have a criminalization included as that as to a reason why you lost the lost the baby, it's heartbreaking. Can you talk a little bit more about actually how this miscarriage and how other miscarriages are criminalized? I think one of the particular challenges, well, there's so many challenges in these kinds of cases, but one of the big ones is that there's miscarriage and stillbirth. There's often no cause ever sorted out for, for these. And so not only do we have um, an experience of immense loss, but it's, it's an unexplainable phenomenon for the vast majority of these of these um, pregnancy losses. So you have that on one hand, and then you've got prosecutors who are blaming women for the outcomes of their pregnancies as if we live in a universe in which women, pregnant people can guarantee a healthy birth outcome. If you just do X, Y, and Z, you're gonna have a pr- healthy birth outcome. We know that's absolutely not true. And miscarriage especially is incredibly common. We know somewhere between 10 to 15% of all pregnancies end in miscarriage. And it's likely that 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 number is even higher because so many end in miscarriage before someone even knows they're pregnant. And then stillbirth, while a a lower um, number, is still quite high in the United States. So this is an incredibly common phenomenon. And then um, one that requires a personal family community response and a, and a public health and medical response. And what we're seeing more and more in the United States is it where the criminal legal system is getting involved. So to answer your, the, the, the question you just asked, 
this is the combination of the sort of hyper-criminalization system in the United States, the war on drugs that dates back to the 70s in the United States, and then the war on abortion access and reproductive rights. And it all sort of comes together for women in, in the United States where they are, where society or the criminal legal system is just determining that something they did or didn't do during pregnancy is to blame for pregnancy loss, or in most of our cases, it actually results in a healthy outcome, a healthy baby, a healthy birth. And yet, because they shared that they were using prescribed drugs or controlled substances, they are being prosecuted for felony child neglect, or um, we've had cases of um, delivery of drugs to a minor through the umbilical cord. I mean, it's it's the application of existing criminal laws in ways that were ne they were never intended to be applied because it's a system of racist policing, patriarchy, sort of all coming together um, in, in many of these cases. And what we're seeing in the United States is an increase in these kinds of prosecutions. We studied this and from 1973, which was when Roe versus Wade was decided, which gave, um, which established the constitutional right to abortion in the United States. Um, from 1973 to 2005, we were able to document 413 cases in the United States involving either a criminal prosecution or another form of a rights violation in relation to one's pregnancy. From 2006 to 2020, so in the past 15 years, we've seen a tripling of that number, more than triple, so close to 1,300 cases. Um, so we're talking about three times as many cases in half the time period. So we are definitely seeing an acceleration. And I think there's so many things I'd like to ask you based on that answer you just gave me because it was so much in there. I think first I'd love to really reiterate to listeners, we don't know a lot of causes as to what happens to the miscarriage. And so drug take, whether it's prescription or whether they've managed to or they've taken methamphetamines or something like that, there's no scientific evidence to show that that is the reason why somebody has lost their baby or miscarried. Mm -hmm. That's right. What we there's a lot of mythology around it that started around the crack baby epidemic in the United States, and there was article upon article written about essentially an entire generation of babies that would grow up um, with you know severe disabilities and other conditions because of the drug use of their their mothers. Um, again, sort of. This was targeted at Black women, it was targeted at Black families, and it was based on a very small study that even the study, the head of this, of that particular study, the author of it, has recanted, essentially, has said that this was not um, well-constructed and it wasn't big enough and the sample size wasn't big enough. And yet, because of that, we are still combating this stigma around drug use during pregnancy. There is no evidence to show that drug use causes pregnancy loss, none. What we do know is that there are prescription medications you can take to induce an abortion, medication abortion. Other than those, we are unaware of any other drug. And in fact, as one of my, as my colleague Lynn Paltrow, who founded our organization often says, if methamphetamine caused pregnancy loss, she would be sending it to Texas right now, to women in Texas. It does not. But again, when we, when we think about women as, you know, their primary role is as sort of the vessel for the pregnancy and the fetus or the fertilized egg embryo or fetus is, is paramount. 
the rights of the of the mother, the rights of the pregnant person are are diminished. It's not it's a zero sum calculation. And despite the the lack of science, we still battle this perception that women are if they are not doing everything perfectly, according to whoever designates what it is to be perfect, they are to blame. And it is really frustrating to be in working on these cases where we know that there is no science to back it up. And even if there was, do we think that the criminal legal system is the right response to that? You know, even if certain controlled substances cause pregnancy loss or cause these um, you know, long-standing uh, negative birth outcomes that that could impact someone for the rest of their life. As a society, we have designated that the response to that is incarcerating women, is charging women and putting them in prison away from their families, away from their communities, um, and not sort of a public health response of treatment, of support. And so there's layer, there's all, there are a lot of layers to this. When somebody is pregnant, do they lose a lot of their human rights in the US and suddenly they could be convicted of a crime that if they were not pregnant, they would never have come across? Yes, um, that's absolutely right. So in, in many states, when the word child is used in a criminal law, that is now being applied to fertilized eggs, embryos, and fetuses. So if you could be convicted of felony child abuse or child neglect because you have um, done something during your pregnancy that the, the state in which you're in, the prosecutor where you live, has decided harmed or even exposed the fetus to a risk of harm. And so your rights, your... Um, your ability to make decisions about your own body are don't are, no longer exist in the same way if you had not if you were not pregnant and i can give a few examples in most states in the united states drug use is not criminalized drug possession is criminalized and yet when it's a pregnant woman the drug use is the fact that Prosecutors then use to charge pregnant women with felony child neglect or abuse or delivery of drugs to a minor. So in any other context, you would not be criminalized for drug use, except if you are a pregnant woman. Um, you know, we have we've had cases not involving drugs. We had we had a case in particular in New York um, where a pregnant woman, she was eight months pregnant. Among other things, she was driving without um, a seatbelt. She um, got into a car accident. She delivered her baby early. Her baby did not, unfortunately, survive. And she was charged with manslaughter of the baby in part because she wasn't wearing a seatbelt. Now, you know, you could, of course, not wearing a seatbelt is in the United States. I think you can get points off your license or something. But, but for her pregnancy, that would not result in a charge against her or losing the pregnancy. Now, luckily in that case, after many years of a legal battle, she um, won at the Court of Appeals, the highest court in New York. And what the court said in that decision was, if we were to allow this conviction to stand, women could be charged with things like manslaughter if they lost a pregnancy um, because they went downhill skiing, because they didn't conform to the dietary instructions of their OB, you know, because they um, did yoga in a hot room. I mean, you can you can think about all and and the truth of the matter is we don't know 
there's so little known about pregnancy and we get conflicting information. I don't know if, if you've been pregnant, you know, you get conflicting information all of the time around what you should or shouldn't do during pregnancy. But ultimately what, what we know is that the vast, vast majority of, of pregnancy losses and pregnancy outcomes have nothing to do with what you did or didn't do during pregnancy. Um, so we see this transformation of laws that were never intended to apply to a pregnant person or apply to a fetus being applied um, because simply because that person is pregnant and because the state has decided that the uh, personhood of the fetus trumps the personhood of the pregnant woman. And what role do the health workers have in this? Well, it's not a, it's not always a clear picture. In what we have seen are healthcare workers calling the police um, on patients. There are certain states that require that if you um, know if you drug test a pregnant woman or a baby and there's a positive outcome, you are required to call child protective services. You don't have a choice. Um, and in some circumstances, child protective services, which is civil in nature, so it's not criminal, but it results in it could result in family separation. Um, those those cases end up they could remain open, they could close, but then that agency calls the police. So sometimes it's hospital or healthcare worker directly to the police. Sometimes it's um, child welfare to the police, and sometimes it you're calling an ambulance to your home because you're experiencing a medical emergency. And in the United, you know, in the United States, an ambulance may show up, the fire department may show up, the police may show up, and so you are in direct contact with the police immediately in some of those situations. And that's happened in some of our our cases in which, um, you know, a mom has had a home birth or precipitous birth where the baby arrived so quickly that they couldn't make it to the hospital. And all of a sudden they're interacting with the police right then and there. And the police suspect something is awry and you're in the system. So um, we see it in all sorts of, of ways, but the, um, but the medical system is directly implicated. How dangerous is that for women if they're pregnant, being terrified to go to their healthcare provider in case the police turn up? There are now more and more um, studies that we're looking at that show the negative health impacts of these kinds of laws. Every single major medical um, and public health association in the United States has issued statements condemning this practice of criminalization from the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists to the American Academy of Pediatrics to the American Medical Association. I mean, there's dozens that have said that um, the criminal legal system has no place in this, um, in it, when it when it's addressing substance use of during pregnancy or anything else during pregnancy, and what we've seen one example that is particularly stark is the state of Tennessee in the United States passed a law called the fetal assault law, which was the only law of its kind in the country that explicitly criminalized uh, women for conduct like drug use during pregnancy, and it existed for two years, and there was such a public outcry over it that it actually sunset it and it wasn't voted on again to be renewed. But what academics have looked at is they've looked at birth outcomes before that law, during that law, and after that law. And what they've been able to identify is that there was an increase in fetal and infant neonatal death while the law was in effect because women stopped going to their providers. They traveled longer distances to go to um, different providers. So they would go to inconsistent, they wouldn't go to the same provider repeatedly um, or they avoided care altogether. Some would travel to other states to have their babies. And it because people were getting less care or inconsistent care, um, there were worse, far worse birth outcomes during that the time that the law was in effect. 
Um, and so we're, we're replicating, we're trying to replicate that study in other parts of the country, comparing even county by county data. Um, some counties over prosecute, some counties don't prosecute at all. It's based all on the whims of the prosecutor. So there may be more data to, to support the thesis that these laws are incredibly harmful to, um, to families, to babies. And most of them, if not all of them, are part of the agenda, the anti-abortion agenda. And so if you are claiming to be protective of fetuses, protective of uh, babies, you are doing the opposite by um, enforcing existing laws in this way or attempting to pass laws explicitly targeting this kind of thing. You're listening to 3CR. My name's Alice and this is an interview with Dana Sussman, Deputy Executive Director of the National Advocates for Pregnant Women in the United States. Today we're talking about the case of Brittany Pooler and the attack on pregnant women's and people's bodies in the US. Let's get straight back into it. And why don't those people that are opposing your your organization, for example, and some of the things that you're saying, why why aren't they seeing that? Why is it you have the evidence right in front of you? You know what's more harmful for infants and um, for for mothers and for families in the long run. What is it that they aren't getting? It's a really good question. Um, I think there's there are a lot of layers to it, and I think you know, I think it's a combination of misogyny and racism that certain people don't deserve to be parents or act in ways that um, make them less deserving to be parents or to be able to parent the, the children that they give birth to. And there is this professed sort of focus on the fetus and the fetus's well-being. And it's as if the pregnant person doesn't exist in that equation and that we are not providing the pregnant person with care. We're not providing the family with paid medical leave or all the other things that uh, a baby and a family need after the birth. But as a fetus, they are, you know, the, the, the absolute most important thing and the pregnant person and her, you know, born children and all of her needs are um, are not considered. I also think just this is my own opinion that fetuses are a really convenient group to advocate for. They don't ask for anything. They don't complain. They don't um, they're not uh, they don't have opinions. And so you can be focused on the personhood and the rights of fetuses and never have to answer any questions about, you know, for that group. Um, so I, I just think that it's a really convenient position to, to hold on to and far less complicated in many ways than almost any other position. And, um, and it distracts from the real issues that our country and these states are facing. The states that prosecute the women the most are also the states that have the highest maternal mortality rates for black and brown women. They're the states that have the least, um, safety net structures in place. Um, they're the states with the worst education, public education systems. I mean, it's, so it's all part of the same belief system that, you know, again, fetuses are more important than women. They're more important than born children. Um, and we're going to focus our attention on them. And I guess this ties into really how does the abortion ban in Texas and the ongoing call to overturn Roe v. Wade affect already pregnant people, families, mothers, fathers, 
um, and people who are looking to to make their own choices and to not be criminalized. We know that even before, so there's a there's a fiction surrounding Roe that um, if Roe falls and a, a, a woman obtains an abortion, she is not going to be prosecuted. That, you know, if anyone's going to be prosecuted, it's going to be the provider of that abortion. And what we know before Roe is that women were prosecuted for seeking illegal or unsanctioned abortions in the United States, um, not just the abortion providers. And um, there have been women who have sought abortions outside of the legal mandates um, set up since Roe, whether it was outside of the gestational limit or by getting abortion pills in a way that wasn't sanctioned, um, who have been prosecuted since Roe in the United States. I think something like 24 cases. So we know that when abortion access is more restricted, women will be prosecuted. Um, and there's a couple cases, uh, more recent cases in the United States, Pervy Patel in Indiana, who um, sought to have an abortion and was prosecuted and charged and convicted until the highest court in Indiana overturned her conviction. And then a case of a woman, Latisse Fisher, which was, I think, just in 2019. And the prosecutors used her internet search for mifepristone, the abortion pill, as evidence in her case that she didn't actually miscarry or experience a stillbirth, but that she sought abortion pills and um, prosecuted her under that legal theory. And that was just a couple of years ago. So we expect that if Roe is overturned, we will see more and more of these prosecutions. And we're seeing the limits on abortion access already play out in Texas and copycat bills around the country both because more women will be more desperate to figure out other options and because Roe stood for not just the constitutional right to abortion, but the reaffirmed that fetuses are not people under the U.S. Constitution. And again, if Roe is overturned, it sort of opens the floodgates to this, um, to more personhood laws, which are becoming more and more common in the United States where a state will say that, you know, um, you know, an, a fertilized egg embryo or fetus is a person under the state constitution or under certain state laws, those will become more and more common. And then those will be used to prosecute women because when you make a fetus a person, um, they can become a victim of a crime. And um, who, you know, they're, in most cases, the person who could perpetrate that crime would be the pregnant woman. Um, so we see a lot of um, potential, you know, enormous ramifications if Roe is overturned beyond the um, beyond limiting access to abortion, which is, you know, devastating in and of itself. And who are the people most at risk? You know, every system in the United States of policing, of surveillance, whether it's the criminal legal system, the family regulation system, um, is the targets of these systems are poor people, people of color, immigrants, and we expect that that will be the same. Um, our study that I referenced earlier of the, those 400 plus cases from 1973 to 2005 showed that women of color were disproportionately represented, poor women were disproportionately represented, Black women especially were disproportionately represented in that, in that um, group. Um, and you know, we have multiple systems of justice in this country. We have a different system entirely for 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 people who can afford their own attorney, um, who can decide what kind of medical care they seek, who aren't um, who aren't required to seek certain care because they are part of the public health the public 
Medicaid system in the United States, and then an entirely different system of justice for people who rely on court-appointed attorneys and, you know, busy public defenders. Um, so, you know, we expect that we'll see sort of more of that disparity play out um, as these laws, you know, as we wait, await these decisions from the Supreme Court um, and sort of anticipate a post-Roe America. And obviously we're in Australia. We're not on the ground with you in the US, but how can we support you, support Brittany, um, and really just make sure that we've got your back all the way down under? <laughs> well, I think that... Um, we have a lot to learn about how other countries navigate these issues. Um, we have this really harmful sense of American exceptionalism, and we're exceptional in all of the worst ways, um, uh, in my opinion. So I think if there are um, if there are lessons we can learn, or models of care, or um, medical studies that we can cite, um, you know, that is really some of the best ways that we can look elsewhere for better models and start implementing those in some of our the states that are more likely to pass, you know, laws that increase access to abortion, um, where some some places are actually trying to do in the US. And I think, you know, on a more on the ground level, I don't know exactly practically how it works, but we have abortion funds, we have a whole abortion fund system in the United States, because again, abortion is not covered under most insurance plans, and certainly not under public insurance. Um, so you can support abortion funds. There is a whole bunch in Texas and in the surrounding states around Texas that are inundated with um, with demand. Um, and so I would encourage folks to, to support them. You can support us at advocatesforpregnantwomen.org. And we also have on our homepage a place where you can write a note to Brittany um, so you can get that, to that on our homepage and we have a fund that we've created just for Brittany. It doesn't cover her legal fees. Those are pro bono. Uh, those are free, but it covers any expenses that she has while incarcerated or when she gets out, um, to support her in, in sort of reestablishing her life. Um, so those are a couple ways, um, to support, but I, you know, we, um, we, we really need to sort of have a radical reimagining um, in the United States. And so any models around the world, as we watch other countries liberalize their abortion laws, um, we're in one of those rare moments where, uh, you know, the U.S. is contracting and, and the, the, the international trend is that there's been an expansion. Um, and so we're, we're looking elsewhere for, for better models. That was my interview with Dana Sussman, Deputy Executive Director of the National Advocates for Pregnant Women in the United States. We spoke about the case of Brittany Pula, an Indigenous woman in the US who was recently convicted of manslaughter following a miscarriage, and the attack on pregnant people's rights in the US. Do check out the NAPW website for more information and to find out how you can help Brittany Pula. The website is nationaladvocatesforpregnantwomen.org. You'll find heaps of information about Brittany's case alongside information about how often and unremarkable this is. Um, there's so many resources there for you. There's also information on how to help Brittany. So do check that website out. Now we're going to go to a song. And so this is Lady Lash with Spiritual Misfit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
It's written in the stars in the sky. Dream time, my song line still alive. You will not kill our souls. Beat us down. No, 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 no. You try, but our spirit is too strong. My ancestors' roots grow from my tongue. Deep in the belly, running on the front line. Energy full, not listen. Set the truth on fire. Our resilience, a power stemming from the roots of love. Healing medicine like the bush blew from the sun. The power of our ancestors' plan. You can't wipe us out, 'cause here I still stand. We got the power. We got the soul. We got the love. Oh, we got the power. We got the love. Tree with roots, buds planted and regrew. Black woman in the flames, rebirth and renew. Strong like fire, burn it the fuck down. Our ancient land calling mother womb of a power. Moving energy with that voices, can you hear me? Listen, take a moment in this state of truth. I caught you so deep, the black mind is forbidden fruit. Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery, and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. 
you're listening to 3CR, a summer broadcasting special, and you've been with me, Alice, for the last hour and a bit, hour and a half almost. And um, thank you. Thank you at home for listening today to um, the Wednesday Breakfast Show. And we really hope that the interviews that we've brought you this morning has really got your juices flowing, ready for our next year of community broadcasting, activism and work, a lot of work that we've got on. And so thank you for listening. Thank you to all of our guests on the show today. We will see you very soon. Take care. Murnong, yam daisy, yam tuber. Nutty, nutritious, delicious. Grandmother, mother, children. Uncle Bruce, lies, confusion. Anger, elders, truth, confusion. Truth, lesson, archives, answers. Agriculture, culture, black traditions. Ecosystems, regeneration, conservation. Love, ash, dirt, aunties, mothers, grannies, children. Hands. Compost, Murnong yams, prejudice lifted, prejudice lifted. sheep off the soil that I aired with my hands for more than 2,000 generations. I am sovereign, I'm free, unbound myself of western mental shackles, machine type mental slavery. But you see, I'm not free, not until I'm with my land. Preston? Can I kill the grass, turn the soil with my fingers, revitalize the old traditions? Can I start a Murnong farm? In my rental in Preston. Warmth of the aunties. Flowers shine bright like the women who dig them. Their flowers yellow, strong like the sun. 
reflecting the power within them and their men.